the latest podcast episode from Future Medicine AI Hub. I'm Emma Hall, the editor of Future Medicine AI Hub. Today I'm joined by Jim Keane, who is the CEO of Molecular U, a company that has transformed the way health risks are monitored by creating a platform that delivers deep, predictive, early warning health insights for individuals and health plan managers. Thank you for joining us, Jim. It's great to have you with us. Firstly, Please, could you provide a brief overview of your career to date? Sure. So I got out of business school in 1991. And back then, startups were not cool, but I was really interested in startups. So I went to work for a medical device company. And out of that, we did a surgical device. And I happened to interact with some patients and I realized how little information patients had about the procedure they just went through and their health. And so I decided I was going to start a patient-directed service because I saw my first browser in 1994, which was the Netscape browser. And I thought, wow, if you put this browser over all the, the databases and literature, then patients wouldn't have to go to the office to ask the doctor for info. They could look it up themselves. And so my company became the first large community company online for diseases and whatnot. We grew to about a half a million members by 1999, and I sold it to WebMD, and it became WebMD's consumer-facing business. And then I've been captured by digital health ever since. I'm really fascinated by the potential for digital health and better ways of doing things to enable uh, individuals to have more power over their healthcare lives and, and not feel like they're kind of passive pawns in the system. So I've always done something that's mildly subversive uh, with all my companies. I went on to do a diagnostic company that was direct to consumer with bundled telehealth. It was pretty leading edge at the time. And I, I sold that. And then I worked in insurance for about five years, most recently, because I was super curious how the larger system worked. And then I left and I'd been advising molecular youth, my current company, and they asked me to be the CEO and, and take them to market in the US. Amazing, thank you. What is Molecular U and how does the platform work? So the problem that we're addressing uh, is twofold. And so AI comes into play on, on a couple of parts of this continuum. So what you see in front of you is a representation of the total population of any you know given country or entity, right? In this case, it's the United States. And so the first problem is spotting and predicting near-term health events. And so that story link that you see at the bottom left-hand corner was a pretty amazing study. It was done on 4 million patients over 10 years, and it was published in Harvard Business Review. And what they came out with is that in any given year, 3% of the population will unexpectedly develop serious illness and they'll be responsible for 25% of the total cost of the U.S. healthcare GDP. So if you're talking about $4.4 trillion, uh, that's $1.1 trillion. So estimates by medical economists are if you moved upstream even 6 to 12 months in advance of that, you would avoid a lot of cost and human suffering. And so that falls into two areas. So the part that you see on the right side, and this really emphasizes how primitive ways are of assessing people with serious illness now. It really only comes to the, the attention of the system when it's completely obvious and baked in. Even diagnostics are like that. So that's the most expensive, and that's the 80-20 that you always hear about. 
the part before the red line where it says population, those are the people who say, you know, I'm doing pretty well, I'm healthy, and things are great. And then uh, they too will have an incident where something all of a sudden pops up, they have cancer or some serious chronic illness that maybe is baked away for years has popped up. Now, that's the first problem we're addressing. Uh, the second one is actually an opportunity. Uh, right now, in the last 10 years, we've been in the greatest explosion of scientific literature and development in history. In fact, right now, there's about more than a million credible pieces of quality research that are published on hundreds of journals. However, the other problem with that is it's gotten beyond human ability to find that and put it to use. So you could have the same biomarker discover and validate it in multiple parts of the world. And yet it literally sits on a digital shelf gathering digital dust. So the way our system works is where, first of all, we don't believe that the genome is particularly useful for spotting things, even though a lot of resources gone into that. But proteome metabolism is really where it's at. It's functional biology and and what that means is that your genes may be your master plan for how your biology works, but on the day-to-day, second-by-second parts of your life, what's driving it is the proteome, because you're a stack of about 25,000 proteins, and the metabolome, which is about 75,000 in the metabolomics map. And so if you could track those, you could actually see what's incubating away at the molecular level before it even comes to the notice of the conventional system. So our platform uh, hits this in a couple of ways. So you see this kind of sequence where on the left, we have a large language model that is specifically trained on clinical and scientific research and literature. So for years, we've sat on top of all the major journals. And so we'll surface biomarkers when they get discovered and validated. Our current platform has 250 proteins and metabolites that we've validated through uh, our large language model search of the literature. And our next version is coming out in the coming year at 825 markers, so more than three times. So what we do then is if we can see it has been discovered by at least three different independent entities worldwide, we'll put it on our platform and we'll see if we can reproduce their results because that's important in science. And we do that in both healthy and disease biospecimens. And we have developed a proprietary approach to this with our mass spec uh, testing assay. And an assay is a plate that you put all the samples on and run. And so if we can demonstrate that we can reproduce what they say they discovered, then it makes it on there. Um, we're just introducing this in the U.S., but we've driven the cost down to sub $100. And with a single tube of blood, about 250 milliliters, which I'm holding my finger up, that's about 2.5 uh, centimeters in size, we can run the 250 markers. And we're super efficient with this biological material because when the 825 version of our test rolls out, we'll need the same amount of material. We don't need to expand uh, multiple tubes of blood. Now, the other part of uh, technology that then comes into play, which we've had to work on this for nine years, is you get all this data, so what? The average clinician just doesn't know what to do with it. And we're still in the old times of being single biomarker driven, like here's your cholesterol or your glucose. But we're more complex than that. We're holistically, you look at us, we're multiple biomarkers every day working together. 
And so we're able to take this data with multiple biomarkers and assemble it into what we call these predictive risk signatures. And we've developed 26 so far when our new version comes out, will be right around 825 markers generating probably 60 risk signatures. So I'll pause there. That was a lot to take in, but that's how our system works. Thank you. How has molecular use AI-driven early technology saved the lives of those with cancer and other severe illnesses? Yeah, so if you think about that we generate these signatures, uh, they're extraordinarily accurate. So for example, I always identify with my what I call my favorite patients in any given year. So we have one of our subscribers who's been with us for five years. And the first three years, she was incredibly healthy. Her signatures all came back as, as being in the green, which is good. And then last year, at about this time, actually, she got her test results back with her yearly test. And her signature was unusually bright red in different areas with the 250 markers. And we analyzed it because we've never seen one before like that. And it matched up with pancreatic cancer. And so we took her report and contacted her doctor for her and explained to him what we had. And he was good enough to take the new findings, which were pretty novel, and order imaging. And she had imaging done. They found three tiny little lesions on her on the tail of her pancreas. And so those were excised. And when they did the biopsy on them, they had discovered that they had just transformed from benign to malignant. And so that was a great catch. And then she recovered from the surgery. And we we're curious this summer, we reran her results just to see at the molecular level, has she changed? And she'd gone back to healthy values at the molecular level. And so I don't know if you know anything about that cancer, but generally they don't catch it. And it's a perfect example of that population chart I showed you where it's somebody in pancreatic cancer stage three or four, and they generally tell you to go home and get your affairs in order. So catching something like that just by virtue of a screening was just a fantastic win. And the other thing is, is that I saw her at, at a conference this fall and she uh, told me that she's going to get tested the rest of her life because the most likely person to get cancer is somebody who's already had it. And so, and I worked a lot with cancer patients and there's always this residual in the back of your mind that I wonder if this is the year that my cancer comes back. And so, and I wonder if there's anything I need to do to, to spot it more early, et cetera. So, so that's high value. And right now we have five cancer signatures out of our 26 conditions but we fully expect to be around 20, um, probably in the next year. So that's one example. We have a 98% accurate Alzheimer's test. And while that's more of a chronic condition, we also spot the underlying things like, it turns out that a lot of things like inflammation, hypertension, diabetes, accelerate Alzheimer's. So by looking at that, you can really start arresting the trajectory of somebody with that. So we, typically are driven by consumer and patient stories, and uh, we have thousands of it. So at what stage of people's lives is your platform for? Do you encourage people to start using the platform at a certain age? I'm guessing, obviously, the earlier that you catch these diseases or find biomarkers, the better it is. 
Yeah. So in general for regular screening and all that, I would say that it's mostly adults, but one of our best signatures is actually autism. And we just did a, a really successful development of an autism signature. It is about 99% accurate. And this, this is a really difficult patient to manage because they're, you know, children under 18, they're, uh, they have communication issues and you have to be just super delicate in how you interact with them. And it turns out that a lot of the things that manifest is part of autism in that you have food sensitivities, et cetera, have to do with uh, dietary issues. And quite a few of them actually are pre-diabetic and have inflammation and some degree of cognition and kidney. So as you can see here, this is another one of our patients and this is William. And he is a 10 year old and he definitely has the, the diagnosis of autism, but you don't treat the autism in general as, as the modern approaches. You start looking, how do I treat the underlying factors? And so having something that tells you what's going on underneath uh, alongside of the, the primary diagnosis is important. And it really speaks to the holistic approach for us. So that's a category where we could certainly go down into younger children, but mostly it's 18 plus. And then what we aspire to is that, and why we want to drive this to be low cost as possible is, is we think that if everybody did this once a year, it would probably significantly change how healthcare works around the world. And it would be something where, of course, I get my regular test because it helps me spot things early before the damage is baked in and before it costs a lot. Yeah, for sure. Do you think that also, I guess, getting tested every year could increase anxiety about some conditions? Do you have any kind of support for your patients that are getting tested around the time they're getting tested and to deal with the results of their test? Yeah, that's a, a fantastically subtle question, actually, because there's a lot going on there. So let me break that apart in a couple ways. So first of all, we don't practice medicine. We're a tool to enable the healthcare practitioner. And what we want to do is enable the practitioner to have a great conversation and meaningful interaction with the patient. And in general, we can see two tracks happening with anybody. Number one, maybe you're always working on health and wellness goals to be the best possible you you can be. But then periodically, as the pancreatic cancer example shows, life intrudes and a serious illness develops. And so then you need your doctor to really step in and take a leading role on that. And so a couple of things could really cause anxiety is if you are, say, a patient and your test result surfaces cancer, if we just sent you the result, said, hey, you have cancer today, by the way, um, probably not a good outcome, right? And so you probably need to route that one through the practitioner to have a time to review it, come up with an action plan and say, yes, this is serious, but we know how we're going to go about this. So I, I think it has to be pretty nuanced. And how you deliver the info around cancer is, is different because it's so scary. Uh, if you're a new subscriber, for example, I, I got my first test in March. And I'm 62, so I was sitting there going, I wonder what hidden time bomb they're going to find. 
for example. Maybe I have onset of Alzheimer's and I don't even know it. And so there is some degree of anxiety about that. But in the end, I was glad I knew I did get a, a really good test result back. So I kind of always tend to worry about things like that before they happen. But like most people, once it happens, you just deal with it. But I had a really good health and wellness practitioner I talked to. Unfortunately, I didn't have a serious illness. So I, I do think that it will cause the interactions between consumers that are wanting to be active on their health and professionals that are going to help them. So here's uh, all, another one of our clients. And obviously, we've changed her name, but uh, she has Alzheimer's disease, and it was a pretty strong match. And with her, it's more, a lot of times on the Alzheimer's patients, it's not the patient themselves, it's the family that, that are the caregivers. So it does get super nuanced depending on the condition and you almost have to do a social map, I think, in the future. Since I was a kid, I've read dystopian science fiction. And so I have pretty much put this critical lens on myself is what what could be the negative aspects about what we do. And one thing I really thought about is going back to the pancreatic cancer story, what if we had people who were subscribers and got the test on a regular basis and we revealed things like that early, but it turned out they didn't have healthcare coverage to go remove the pancreatic cancer. And so they literally be sitting there going, oh my gosh, I could have gotten this out early and yet I don't have the money to take care of that. So I do think that if something like this becomes widespread, it's going to cause you know, basically government entities, I believe, uh, to have to have a, a pretty significant policy discussion around, all right, we found these. So if we have everybody engaged um, with that, we have to follow through with the implicit promise that we're going to take care of you if we find something. Yeah, definitely. In your opinion, why do you think online health communities are important? Well, speaking as somebody who's been there from the beginning, see, one of our very first online health communities was breast cancer. So we mapped that one out in 1995, and we actually led to the formation of a number of significant uh, communities of women uh, around, you know, like the Pink Ribbon, and uh, that group was fantastic. And in the early days, like any startup, we didn't have a ton of people. We had about 20 diseases to start. So I picked a few that I manned the support for the message boards because those had just come out. And so I sat on the message board for uh, breast cancer and I also did fibromyalgia. And it, it's interesting how each disease group seems to have a completely different personality. And, and I completely appreciated uh, the breast cancer community that I was the moderator for. Uh, they were super courageous women. They were super helpful. But the interesting thing was early on, what you saw happen there was just one that stuck in my mind is this woman types in, I'm 36 years old. I have three kids. I just was told I had stage two breast cancer and I was so stunned. I didn't ask a single question. And then I left and now I have a million questions and I, I'm concerned I'm going to die. And all the people in the community jumped in and instantly you had these experienced patients who in a lot of ways are more informed than a medical professional. 
they said, well, next time you go back, ask these questions and uh, what did they say? And, and don't take this or uh, here's something to figure out. And so it, it was interesting watching that interaction is within a day, uh, this woman had been stabilized, had an action plan, and was feeling a lot better about confronting a, a serious condition. And I think of it in anthropological terms is that when you get develop a serious illness, you literally join a tribe of people. They have their own customs, their own language, keywords, heroes, enemies. There, there's almost a complete mapped out society. And as a patient, uh, the way I think it works best is that your job is to go figure out where your community is, because that's where all the tribal wisdom is. So I think they're highly valuable in answer your question. I think it's it's really important to be able to talk about shared experiences especially when something is very difficult. And obviously, I think sometimes there's a gap in the relationship between a patient and their clinician, just because I guess they feel like, yes, my doctor knows exactly the science behind what I'm going through and what treatment options I have, but they haven't been in my shoes. It's important to also be able to talk to people who can empathize. Yeah. Totally. Um, there's an interesting study that stuck in my mind for 15 years that the treatment that a clinician will recommend to you and prescribe directly corresponds to the year they graduated from medical school. So if you think about that, you could be critical of the practitioner, but they're just a victim of the system. They get out, they see people in 10 minute slots through the day. And maybe if they're super dedicated, they'll take an hour on the weekend to research a case uh, that's unusual. But otherwise, they just go on what they learned and they have a hard time progressing. And so that that's actually a challenge with what we have, right? Because we have this potentially very complicated set of findings and risk signatures. And so what we really have put a lot of time into is the way people get the information from us is we'll send them a PDF if they want. There's also a mobile app and the mobile app also allows telehealth and both the consumer has access to their own account, but the practitioner does too. But then the question becomes, how do you set the table so the practitioner and the patient or consumer can have a really productive conversation in a super short amount of time, you know, 10 or 15 minutes. And so really where it comes down to is you need to help the practitioner feel comfortable that you're you're not going to be embarrassed by your lack of knowledge in a new area so you can talk about it because it's helpful for the patient and so things like here are the results they're easy to understand and explain here's key language here are the scientific citations that are right at the fore for you if you want to go research those and then we're also beginning to work on logic that says when this patient comes in front of you, here are the three things that you should bring up during your interaction with them, as well as here maybe are the two next best actions. And so if you can actually embed the language in the interaction alongside of the risk signatures and data we have, you're going to end up with a really good result because the consumer is going to feel like the practitioner took the time to understand them better because they just sound more intelligent and prescriptive. And the doctor is going to feel super secure that they can rely on what we provide them to uh, actually deliver a superior experience. 
Thank you. You have already touched on this actually with a few inspiring stories, but would you like to share any more? If not, I can move on to the next question. I think the pancreatic cancer story is my current favorite right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I will say we've got less dramatic ones where we are about to publish an interview, I think, with a 74-year-old man who got our test about two years ago and realized even though he felt healthy on, on the surface, he just didn't feel great. And he had a lot of underlying things like you see with Nancy, uh, cognitive health. Uh, he didn't have that, but inflammation, dietary health, all those things were surfacing in his test. And he uh, basically went down and got a really good health and wellness practitioner that we've trained and went through the process and addressed his weaknesses at the molecular level. And he, he was pretty remarkable. I think he lost 120 pounds. And uh, he just says, I, I haven't felt this way in years. So I like stories like that too. It's not immediate threat of death type of story that the pancreatic cancer one had, but uh, that story I find particularly inspiring for a 74 year old man. Yeah. Final question I have is, if you could pick one thing, what would you most like to accomplish at Molecular U within the next five years? I would like our tests to have been the tipping point that people rely on every single year to tell them how they're doing way in advance of the current system and that their data belongs to them, but also increasingly helps them drive their decision-making and choices and whatnot. So we're always going to be squarely on the consumer side around your data, your results, longitudinal results and whatnot. So being that cornerstone. And then I'm going to cheat and give a second one is that I'd like that to be available to millions of people. Because every time we get a complex profile, it actually increases the accuracy of our overall database because we get more and more info and we can fine tune it more. So being a repository with millions of consumers that trust us to run the test for them, interpret the results and connect them with care. I think those two things work really well together. Thank you. Do you have any closing comments? Actually, I'll say yes. For me, a company like this, you have to translate it to dollars and cents to go raise money and whatnot. But I have been in healthcare my entire career because I love the human stories and I literally cannot work on a business that doesn't have some underlying social good. And I do think one of the things that we can aspire to is to switch the discussion from I've caught this serious illness, but only after it baked away and incubated for years to one of where people are proactive and on top of their health, you know, long before it surfaces to be obvious. So I think companies like this are what get me out of bed in the morning and uh, get me excited about what the future holds. Thank you so much for speaking with us today, Jim. It's been really insightful to hear more about AI-driven early detection technology and how these platforms have saved the lives of those with cancer and other severe illnesses. Thank you also to our listeners. And if you would like to hear any more podcasts like this, please head to www.fmaihub.com.